So I just want to begin. Is the sound okay in the back there? Can you hear it in the way back? Good. Okay. During the first week of part two, when the part two yogis came and all of us teachers came, during that first week, I, I lost my mask, right? You know those masks that we used to wear? I lost it. I looked in the bathroom, I wasn't there. I looked in the, the bedroom, it wasn't there. I looked up in my meeting room, it wasn't there. Student staff dining room, I, I couldn't find it. And just over losing a small thing, my mind was in contention with it. It was like, how did this happen? (laughs) Seriously, Brian, how did this happen? And underneath that was this sense of, it wasn't supposed to happen. But it did. And I do want to share, it, there is a happy ending. I found it. <laughs> and maybe you've noticed this on retreat. You know, sometimes it can uh, happen with some of those sweet states, the sweet taste of samadhi or the heart is opening with love, with kindness and compassion. And it's steady and soothing. And then, boom, you lose it. And maybe your mind's like mine. How did this happen? And maybe underneath that is the sense of, that wasn't supposed to happen that way. But it did. And maybe it kind of comes back, so there's a sort of kind of happy ending, or maybe it doesn't come back, and it's not a happy ending. I was teaching a retreat a few years ago in New Mexico. It was uh, just a, a weekend retreat. And it was at the end of the first day, so it was the end of Saturday, and I was staying in a place, and my partner was there. So I, I came back, and um, and I remember the act of the place we were staying, of opening the door, walking in, and seeing her face, and realizing that something deeply had gone wrong. And she stuttered the way people do with difficult news. And we had just found out that a dear friend of mine had tragically died in an accident, leaving her husband, a dear friend of mine, and their daughter. And I remember the feeling how could this have happened? 
And underneath that was the feeling, this, this isn't supposed to happen like this. But it did. It definitely wasn't a happy ending. We lose all kinds of things from masks to meditative states to our health to the people we love. And sometimes, and maybe you can relate to this, sometimes I even feel the loss of something I never even had. Maybe you've noticed that. I feel the loss of that relationship that I really wanted to have but never happened or the life that I wanted that never happened or the upbringing that I wanted that never happened and I feel the loss of that or even you've maybe noticed here because I know this can happen on retreat where my mind it's it's like trying to ready myself for the imminent losses thinking and wondering about when this I lose this or that This is the human predicament, right? I lose things. You lose things. The writer Catherine Schultz uh, shares her reflections on this in, in a, a book of hers, Lost and Found. And she's sharing some reflections that are coming into her heart and in her mind after her father died. So I want to share with you some of these passages because it, it fits so well with this theme I want to share with you. She says, This is how loss felt to me after my father died. Like a force that constantly increased its reach gradually encroaching on more and more terrain. Eventually, I found myself keeping a list of all the other things I had lost over time as well, chiefly because they kept coming back to mind. A childhood toy, a childhood friend, a beloved cat who went outside one day and never returned. The letter my grandmother wrote me when I graduated from college. A threadbare but perfect blue plaid shirt. A journal I'd kept for the better part of five years. On and on it went, a kind of anti-collection. A melancholy catalog of everything of mine that had ever gone missing. And then she continues. We often ignore the true scope of loss, if we can. 
But for a while after my father died, I could not stop seeing the world as it really is, marked everywhere by the evidence of past losses and the imminence of future ones. This was not because his death was a tragedy. Actually, my father died peacefully at 74, tended throughout his final weeks by those he loved most. It was because his death was not a tragedy. What shocked me was that something so sad could be the normal, necessary way of things. And then she continues, this relentless disappearance is is not the whole story of our lives. But in the weeks and months after my father died, I could not stop thinking about it, partly because it seemed important to understand what all of these losses had to do with each other, and partly because it seemed important to understand what all of them had to do with me. A lost wallet, a lost treasure, a lost father, a lost species. As different as these were, they and every other missing thing suddenly seemed fundamental to the problem of how to live. Seemed in being gone to have something urgent to say about being here. Loss has something urgent to say about being here. Just being here, right now on this retreat. For me, this is what I feel like the Buddha is saying to me in so many different ways in these teachings. That loss has something urgent, urgent to say about being here. For example, in the five daily reflections, these five reflections, the Buddha encourages both monastics and lay practitioners to engage in every day. And there's one of those daily reflections. Everything that is dear and delightful to me will change and vanish. It's remembering, oh yeah, I lose things. Oh, you lose things. Really, we lose everything. In the Satipatthana Sutta, this Four Foundations of Mindfulness, which is so much of the basis of what we're attempting to share with you in terms of the the meditation instructions. There's that one piece of mindfulness of the body that's really important. It's this reflection on that this body is going to be lost. This life will be lost. Gone. And all of this, all of this has something urgent to say 
about being here. Right here, right now as I speak to you. Even the Buddha, he's an animal like you and me. (laughs) He has this particular history, this particular lineage of being part of this species, this human species. A human being who felt the poignancy of loss, the pain of loss. So so the story goes, the the Buddha's mother died seven days after he was born. His, His whole being had been carried by the rhythms of his mother's heartbeat, the tone and rhythm of her voice, her scent and what she ate. And then she was gone. This is how he came into the world, with this experience. And even after the Buddha awakens, you know, when I read those, you know, early texts, I I hear, I discover this Buddha that again, was touched by the poignancy of loss, the the pain of loss. For example, uh, for the Buddha, the the city, the the city of Vasali, seemed to hold a real special place in his heart. For example, in one passage, this comes from the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, the Buddha is sharing with Ananda how lovely and beautiful the city of Vasali is. He says something like, Ananda, Vasali is so lovely, it's so beautiful. It has the lovely Udena shrine and the lovely seven maiden shrine and the, the lovely many sons shrine and the lovely Chapala shrine. And he goes on and on like this sharing this with Ananda. And then fast forward just a bit. Just before the Buddha died, he got up one morning and he went into the city of Vasali for his alms round to go beg for his midday meal. So he goes into the city, gets his food, begs, and then he's walking out of the city, and, and the, the, the sutta says, as he's coming back from alms round, he, he looked back upon the city. And it says it in a really particular way. He looks back on it the way an elephant looks back upon something, which I find striking. Right? It's, he doesn't just like turn around with his head. An elephant, right? An elephant has to turn its entire body to look what's behind them. So here's the Buddha turning his entire body. And what I imagine, here he is, he's opening his heart. He's beholding 
the city. And as he's beholding the city, he says, he says to Ananda, Ananda, this will be the last time that I behold Vasali. Right? For me, he's taking in how this place has touched his heart and the lingering loss of it. The poignancy of loss. Or when the Buddha receives the news of the loss of the Venerable Mahamogalana and the Venerable Sariputta, these his chief disciples, his dear friends. And, and I find it striking how he describes this moment for him. So here's this huge hall with all these monastics in the hall. And he says, he says yeah, as I look out onto the assembly hall, now that the Venerable Mahamogalana and the Venerable, sorry, Puta are gone. It feels as if this room is empty. That's not a factual statement. That's an emotional statement. Like the room is filled with all kinds of people, but it feels empty. Have you ever had that experience? I know I have. You come into a place where that person, you had that relationship with that person, and it's like you can feel it there, like you can feel the absence there. It feels as if the room is empty, empty of them. That's the, the description to me of the loss, the pain of loss. And then gives another image. It's like this great giant tree of heartwood. And the largest branches of that tree fall away. To me, that speaks of emotion. Loss. Something so great and majestic is now gone. It's been uh, deeply meaningful for me and powerful to imagine a Buddha who has tears gently rolling down his face in these experiences. And the reason why it's been meaningful, because of how vital it's been for me to learn to be deeply moved by this world I live in. To be deeply moved by it rather than overwhelmed by loss, rather than being so flooded by loss that I'm disconnected. To be deeply moved and not overwhelmed. Or in other words, this aspiration I have to have a heart that has the capacity to fully feel the arisings, the births, and the losses.
So here we have a Buddha, at least I'm proposing to you, a Buddha who is moved by loss, who grieves with a free heart. And I want to be clear here, just with that one word I just used, that I'm using this word grief and grieving differently than what's found in the early text, the words that are sometimes translated as grief. Because it's true, right after the Buddha shares this about uh, Mahamogalana and the venerable Sariputta, he says, and I do not grieve and I do not sorrow. Nepali, nati tatagatasa soko va peridevo va soka peridevo to sorrow, to lament. So, how to understand this? How to understand these Pali words? How to understand what the Buddha is saying here? And hopefully, to more deeply understand what it is to live in the midst of this predicament of loss. And I, I want to express my gratitude to uh, the scholar Jan Natier. I was, I was teaching a retreat. I was sharing the sutta. And afterwards she said, you know, there's a sutta right before that one, which is really great. <laughs> it gives such a illumination to maybe what the Buddha is talking about. And... Uh, because the sutta before it, sometimes I feel like there's something serendipitous about this, something synchronous, is Venerable Ananda's experience of the loss of Sariputta. Because here is Ananda, and he says, you know, around the loss of uh, uh, the Venerable Sariputta, he says, uh, Venerable Sir, it's as if my body seems as, as, as if it has been drugged. I have become disoriented and the teachings are no longer clear to me. Isn't that interesting? That's a different description of going through the loss of Sariputta. Disorientation, loss of the practice of Dhamma. So maybe this is what the Buddha is pointed to when he uses these words, sokka and parideva. Parideva means lamentation, but it's compounded by this word sokka, which is connected to the flame of a fire. So it's burning grief or being burned by grief. Being overwhelmed, being so disoriented that I forget about Dharma practice. Do you, do you hear how there can be this door opening? I know there is one for me to continue with this aspiration I shared with you. To be with the emotions that come with loss in a way that I'm not complicating those emotions with reactivity. That I end up worse for it. I'm not saying at least the way I imagine it. It doesn't mean that grief will not be messy. But it's a kind of grief that has the potential of being onward leading from my heart. Yeah, painful. It feels as if the room is empty. I feel that pain. I feel the poignancy of it. So 
to how to nurture this aspiration, if you might have an aspiration like I do. And I think this, the way to nurture to, is in itself a, a journey, which is really, to me, happening within really this vast and varied landscape of the many different losses that we experience as human beings. And I think the, the first piece is something you already know. It's the simple practice of just being with, just noticing. What's this like right now? To slow down with that, with, of course, with a sense of compassion, kindness, a, a tender, soft heart. This quality of simply being with. There's a a poem by uh, Mary Oliver called Heavy, which I feel so so, uh, perfectly points to this quality of heart of just being with. She says, the time I thought I could not go any closer to grief without dying, I went closer and I did not die. Surely God has his hand in this, as well as friends. Still I was bent and my laughter, as the poet said, was nowhere to be found. Then, then, said my friend Daniel, brave even among lions, it's not the weight you carry, but how you carry it. Books, bricks, grief, it's all in the way you embrace it, balance it, carry it when you cannot and would not put it down. So I went practicing. Have you noticed Have you heard the laughter that comes now and again out of my startled mouth? How I linger to admire, admire the things of this world that are kind and maybe also troubled. Roses in the wind, the sea geese on the steep wave, a love to which there is no reply. There's the practice, isn't it? It's, it's all in the way you embrace it, the way you balance it, the way you carry it. It's our practice, isn't it? To embrace it, not, not to necessarily wallow in it, but rather to learn to skillfully be with that whole tapestry of emotion that can come with loss. It's, it's so varied, the deep pain of it, the poignancy, the bitter sweetness, sometimes even the joy, the gratitude that can be interwoven into grief. And sometimes even elements of relief. And then to balance it. What's happening right here that supports me through this? Oh, it's the breath, it's the feeling of the body sitting. 
It's the sounds. It's the silence. What's the beauty right beside me or the support right beside me that balances it? Or sometimes even intertwined in the loss. And then to carry it, to feel into the undulations and the reverberations in the body. It's like at at this point, like I'm, I'm inviting myself just to gently set aside the content and the story just to feel, to be here. This to me feels onward leading, this, this place where I can fully feel emotion with capacity. And I, and I want to point out just in this realm of loss to again emphasize, there can be such a richness of emotion, don't you think? Sometimes loss feels great. You're feeling anxiety, you're feeling fear, and then it's gone. Isn't that sweet? (laughs) It's gone. (laughs) Even if it's for a few seconds, it's like, oh, this feels good. Feels great. There's restlessness, and then it disappears, and then there's some tranquility. Wow. That feels good. And as I mentioned, even in the so-called painful uh, losses, right next to that, to the dis- disbelief or anger or sadness, there can be that joy, even humor, gratitude. Such a richness. So I, I also want to point, in terms of the practice of this, this broader context of loss, namely this context of impermanence. This way of perceiving, and this is what I love that he calls this this, uh, this uh, impermanence. So often he's talking about it as a particular way of perceiving experience. Because when I start to see experience in a particular way, I can start to be with experience in a different way. And it's really simple, and I just want to point this out. I'm just sensitizing my heart to this. And it could be the big chunks of arising and passing away. I'm feeling grumpy in the morning. It passes away. There's some joy in the afternoon. It passes away. There's some boredom in the evening. It passes away. And then you might notice when mindfulness gets refined, sometimes it can be happening so quickly in such a subtle way, the kind of the reverberations of a sensation that feels like it's coming and going so quickly. A thought kind of flashes and then disappears. A sound comes and goes. It's just noticing this in a relaxed manner. I'm just taking this in again and again and again, noticing the emotions that arise, how the mind's relating to all this. It's just noticing. It's just being with. And, you know, as, as Shelley was pointing to in their, their talk about faith, about as they expanded that word, deep confidence and trust, it does take a deep confidence and trust to, 
to trust these repeated and often mundane tastes of impermanence that lead to freedom. And I really want to emphasize this. Most of this is so mundane. It's as mundane as noticing how the sound of my voice arises and it passes away. That's perceiving impermanence. That's feeling it. And what I found is that when I have the deep confidence in simply noticing that in a really basic way, it's like this repetitive feeling into and perceiving and per- permanence. It's starting to, it feels like it's allowing me, or it's, 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 uh, it's disrupting this fixed static world my mind habitually co-creates. Or another way of saying is that it, that it feels like my heart is gradually stepping out of a world of nouns and into a world of verbs. Stepping into a world of flow, a world of fluidity, with less reactivity. It's like, oh, I can feel my heart's beginning to be aligned with this flow, this fluidity, this impermanence. And, and once there can be this scene, as I said, perceiving the seeing experience in this way, I can be in the world in a different way because then the world is so much more malleable. It's like it has dimensionality to it. As I said, it disrupts my usual way of approaching experience. It's like it, my, my habitual ways start to get overturned. Even around the death of a dear friend, Like one way this can get disrupted. And and I want to be really clear. This is just one way. There's probably thousands of different ways. I'm not saying that this is the way that one should take in such a deep loss like that of someone close to you. This is just something that resonated from my heart. And it fits again with this this poem that I I think points to something striking. It's It's a poem by Liesel Mueller called In Passing. She begins, How swiftly the strained honey of afternoon light flows into darkness and the closed bud shrugs off its special mystery in order to break and to blossom. As if what exists, exists so that it can be lost and become precious. as if what exists exists so that it can be lost and become precious. Do you hear what Liesel Mueller, the poet, is saying here? How this is a really different sense of the world. Really different. My friend, she became precious in a whole new and vibrant way after she died. She became precious through being lost 
and even further, as if she existed. She existed so that she could die, so that I could lose her and become precious. And it feels like that. She did this for me. She, she existed and then she was lost and gone. And now she's precious in such an amazing way. It's like now I hear her so close to my heart. She whispers in my ears in ways she never did when she was alive. Her, her brilliance and her love has a whole other dimension now. The filmmaker and writer Trinti Minha puts this so well. What it feels like is happening with practice to allow this to come into my heart. She says, despite all our desperate eternal attempts to separate, contain, and mend, categories always leak. I love that. Like categories of alive, of being alive, they begin to leak into the category of dead. The category of not real begins to leak into the category of real. This is something my heart gains from inhabiting a fluid, flowing world. It allows my heart and the world it co-creates to be so permeable. It disrupts all those categories. These core ways of old habitual ways of perceiving and therefore old habitual ways of being. It disrupts rigid stifling categories. They begin to leak into one another. So to trust the process, stop looking for the dramatic. (laughs) If you're anything like me, that's what I did for years on retreat. It's so much in the mundane, just arising and passing away. So back to grief. One more way I want to frame it because I think it, it something is captured in this one last poem I want to share with you by Alice Walker. It's called The Same as Gold. She says, now that I understand that grief is the same as gold, I do not despair that we are all of us born to grieve. 
There was a small, dark girl in my dream the other night. She'd been left with me by strange women there on their way somewhere else. Taking her into my arms, into my house, which had no roof, my tears covered us like rain. Grief, not overwhelming, not burning me, not disorienting me, not forgetting about Dhamma practice. Grief, it's as good as gold. You just need to take her into your arms. So may you realize, may you feel and embody and understand that your grief is as good as gold. As good as gold for the benefit of of all beings. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. Let's uh, briefly sit together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.